You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today to discuss some of the notable laws that were signed by the governor affecting public agency employers in California. My name is Luke Moritz, and I'm a member of the firm's client services team. I'm here today with Dulcinea Grantham and Nikki Nabavi-Nori, labor and employment attorneys in our Walnut Creek office. Thank you for joining me, Dulcinea and Nikki. Thanks for having us, Luke. Hi there. So I want to start us off by discussing the issues surrounding AB 1976 and SB 1085. These are two laws that impact both school districts and public agencies. So beginning with AB 1976, which is focused on lactation accommodations, what does the current law require of employers for accommodating employees needing to express milk? So Luke, current law requires employers to make reasonable efforts to provide employees the use of a room or location other than a single toilet stall in close proximity to the employee's work area for purposes of expressing breast milk. That law is going to change beginning January 1 of 2019 with some new legislation that we're here to talk about. So how does AB 1976 change that existing law? So the legislature enacted AB 1976 um, during this this legislative session. It will take effect on January 1 of 2019. And what it does is it creates some exceptions to uh, the existing requirements for lactation accommodation. So whereas current law that's in existence now Uh, might allow an accommodation for lactation purposes to be be in a restroom facility, just not a single stall. The employers now under AB 1976 are generally, uh, with some exceptions, prohibited from requiring an employee to express breast milk in a restroom facility. Okay. And given the publication of this episode is prior to the time when this will go into effect, what should public agencies do right now so they are prepared when the bill does take effect? Well, Luke, I, that's a great question. In terms of what public agencies should be doing right now so that they are prepared for January, they should be checking their policies, checking their administrative practices, handbooks, and any other written informational materials to make sure that they are consistent with the new requirement and making sure that they're also disseminating this information to supervisors, um, site-level administrators, individuals who are going to be dealing with this on the day-to-day so that everybody is made aware of the new requirements and that issues don't come up because of a lack of knowledge of the, of the new law. And I think Nikki makes an excellent point. Training is a really critical component to ensuring implementation and, and proper implementation of this new requirement. Uh, another thing that I think is important the public agencies should be doing between now and January 1 is assessing their facilities to see where they might be able to uh, make spots available for purposes of lactation accommodation that are compliant with this new law. The law does provide some exemptions where employers may not be required to comply with the law if the employer can demonstrate that compliance would create an undue hardship 
for the employer. So for example, a very small public agency that has limited space in its offices may not be able to designate a single location for purposes of lactation accommodation. Instead, it may need to have employees use their office location if there is a private office location um, for purposes of expressing breast milk or they may need to use a restroom facility, notwithstanding what this law says, if they can demonstrate that it creates an undue hardship to have a location other than a restroom facility. So specifically, the undue hardship can be demonstrated by an employer showing that it cannot provide a permanent lactation accommodation location because of operational, financial, or space limitations. Um, If it is able to provide an alternative location that is private and free from intrusion, that will be acceptable. Um, If the temporary location that it creates is used only for lactation purposes while the employee expresses milk, so in other words, the employee has privacy, it's not being used for purposes of a copy room where copies are being made while the employee is expressing breast milk, Um, and the temporary lactation location otherwise meets the requirement for state law concerning lactation accommodations. And I just want to add to that or really just reiterate a couple things that Dulcinea mentioned um, because they are important for um, ensuring a really smooth implementation of the new requirement is, one, assessing your facilities currently before this law goes into effect so that you're not dealing with this on January 15th for the first time when you have an employee coming in that um, has a a need to express breast milk in the workplace. It's going to be more effective if we look at the facilities now, look at the potential needs now, and uh, work towards implementation. The other part that I want to emphasize is the training, not just training on this new requirement, but doing refresher trainings on on what is required in terms of lactation accommodations uh, from the start. And we talked about uh, making reasonable efforts to provide a room or location, but there are also um, requirements to provide employees um, with reasonable break time to do this. And there are uh, different nuances involved with what that break time is going to look at. So it's not a bad idea in light of this change of the law to sit down and have a training for people who are going to be responsible for implementation to make sure that they are not only aware of the new requirements, but also effectively implementing the existing requirements. And I think a failure to comply with these new requirements as well as the existing requirements that Nikki already mentioned could lead to a claim of pregnancy or gender discrimination. So again, it's really important that you have a plan in place before these requirements kick in, the new requirements kick in on January 1. So the next bill we want to discuss that also impacts both school districts and public agencies is Senate Bill 1085, which is focused on paid time off for union stewards and officers. After looking at this, it seems like SB 1085 is more of a technical change as these types of agreements are generally already present in collective bargaining agreements, or at least covered by other laws. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about Senate Bill 1085. So, Luke, before we can answer your question of whether SB 1085 is a technical change, I think we need to briefly explain 
what type of paid time off currently exists for union stewards and officers in school districts and community colleges. So it's important to know that there's a couple of different types of paid time off. Um, Under the education code, union officers currently are permitted to take a leave of absence for purposes of serving as a union officer. Oftentimes this looks like the union president being on a part-time schedule where they work part-time and then the other part of their regular work hours are spent doing union business. So they're on leave from their position for half-time or 0.5 FTE. That union leave is reimbursable. Um, The district can require the union to reimburse the district for the cost of that leave. So that's one type of leave. The other type of leave that uh, educational employees have for purposes of serving as a union steward or officer is found under the Educational Employment Relations Act, the EERA. And that is paid leave for certain union activities like grievance adjusting um, or processing, attending disciplinary type meetings, attending negotiation. For those types of activities, union representatives are afforded leave by the employer. That is not reimbursable leave. So again, it's important to note the two different types, a leave of absence, which is reimbursable under the Ed Code, versus release time for union representatives under the EERA. So with that background, essentially what SB 1085 does, and that's Senate Bill 1085, It requires public agency employers, so we're talking about employers who are public agency, not just school district or community college employers, to grant, upon the request of the union, reasonable paid leaves of absence to employees serving as stewards or officers of the union or of any statewide or national employee organization with which the union is affiliated. So to loop back and answer your question, Luke, I would say it's not quite a technical change. Um, It'll depend on who you ask. As Dulcinea just went over, existing law does provide for a lot of different types of leaves related to union business. And there are definitely CBA provisions, meaning collective bargaining agreement provisions that different employers and unions have negotiated around the same concept. But what SB 1085 does is it almost kind of centralizes this notion of leave for union-related business, and it says outright in terms of a long list of public agency sectors that employees serving as stewards or officers of the union or of any statewide or national employee organization get to have protected paid time off, which is going to be reimbursed um, by the union to the employer. So let's break down those elements of this new requirement, which will be going into effect on January 1. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about how SB 1085 defines union steward? 
So SB 1085 defines the steward very broadly and essentially leaves it up to the union to designate who is or is not a steward, um, potentially also up to the negotiation process. And that's actually an interesting part of SB 1085 is that a lot of the technical details are left uh, to the negotiation process. So Nikki, under SB 1085, we know that employers, public agency employers, are required to grant upon the request of the union reasonable paid leaves. Do you have any idea what reasonable means under SB 1085? Reasonable is also another concept under SB 1085 that's left very broadly and is going to be an element of the leave that's going to uh, likely need to be resolved at the negotiation table. What's reasonable can vary greatly across uh, the type of agency or the circumstances at stake uh, when the leave is requested. So that's something that is left ambiguous and broad and is going to need to be negotiated. And I think it's important for employers to note that reasonable has been defined in certain circumstances by the Public Employment Relations Board um, in interpreting existing release time for union officers. So although we don't have a clear definition of what reasonable means from SB 1085, we can look to those PERB cases, Public Employment Relations Board cases, to give us some guidance on what might be reasonable. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that when a request comes up and an employer is leaning towards uh, rejecting the request because they don't believe that it's reasonable, it's important to have an articulable reason for that determination. And it's also important to work with the union and to collaborate in terms of trying to narrow the request to the extent that um, that going through that collaborative process um, is available and is reasonable in itself. So what, if anything, should public agencies do to ensure compliance with SB 1085? So SB 1085 actually does have a provision that says that it does not invalidate any existing MOU or collective bargaining agreement that is in effect on the effective date of the legislation, which is January 1st, 2019. So it's important to review existing agreements to determine if existing language conflicts or can be harmonized with the requirements and consider the interests as the employer in anticipation of inevitably receiving requests from unions to negotiate the terms around this type of leave because there is so much ambiguity in what is required and because the actual procedures for requesting and granting leave are expressly left up to the negotiation process, we do anticipate that these requests will will come forward to employers. And I think it's important for 1085, I think there's a couple takeaways. When you get that request for 1085 leave or release time, I think first an employer needs to make sure they understand the request. So what is being requested? Is it a leave? Is it release time? How much of a leave? How much release time? What's the purpose? That will allow the employer to 
determine are we talking about a reimbursable leave under the education code? Are we talking about release time? And it will also help them assess the reasonableness of the request. So understanding the request, I think, is critical. Then the next step, once you know what the request is, as Nikki was saying, you need to assess the reasonableness of that request. Can we make this work? Why not? Why can we? What's going to be the hardship about this? Can we articulate that? So it's not just a yes, you can do it or no, you can't. There's a thought process behind whatever response the district provides or the public agency provides. Then I think it's important that you memorialize what you're able to do. So once you've had a communication, conversation, discussion back and forth with the employee organization about their request, you ultimately memorialize in writing what it is that you've decided to do. So again, it's clear, are you and the union anticipating this to be a leave that's reimbursable under the Ed Code, or is it just release time? Um, And how much is going to be provided? Is this something that is going to go on into perpetuity, or is it going to have an end date? So really thinking through those issues. um, And again, looking at your collective bargaining agreements that... um, regarding organizational security or union rights to see whether there's language in those agreements that may impact how you need to interpret SB 1085 and apply it in your district. So the last bill I want to touch on is AB 2012, which talks about parental leave pay. And just to note, this bill will only affect school districts and not public agencies in general. How does AB 2012 affect current laws governing parental leave? That's a good question, Luke. In order to discuss how it affects current law, I'd like to talk a little bit about those the current law and how it came to be. Uh, we have to go back a couple of years to Assembly Bill 375, which the legislature enacted in 2015, and it became effective on January 1, 2016. That particular law basically allowed certificated employees only to use or to receive differential pay while they were on what is commonly known as maternity or paternity leave. That law, again, was in place in 2016 for certificated school district employees only. In 2016, during the legislative term, the legislature realized it had excluded a large group of school, district, and community college employees from these protections. So during that legislative term, it expanded the receipt of differential pay during maternity or paternity leave to classified employees of school districts and community college employees. The legislature also realized that when it initially enacted AB 375, that law was designed only to apply to districts who had a differential leave scheme in place, and it did not apply to those districts who had negotiated for a 100-day, 50% pay extended sick leave scheme. So again, in 2016, taking effect on January 1, 2017, we had AB 2393 coming out of the legislature, adding classified employees, 
adding community college employees and extending the requirements to districts that had a 100-day extended sick leave policy or practice in place. AB 2393 also did another significant thing in that it started referring to this leave as parental leave. So instead of using the terms maternity and paternity leave, the legislature began using the concept of parental leave, recognizing that this leave applies to non-birthing parents, such as uh, foster parents and adoptive parents. So we will use that terminology today to be consistent with the legislation. So when we are talking about this leave, we're talking about the concept of parental leave, which encompasses what used to be known as maternity and paternity leave. So that brings us to your question um, of Assembly Bill 2012 and what does that, what change does that make to the laws that I just talked about? And I'll let Nikki go ahead and explain a little bit about this change. Yeah, thank you, Dulcinea. So essentially what AB 2012 does is it amends the existing law to require that regardless of which type of differential pay system is used by the school or community college district to compensate employees. So the default five-month differential pay uh, scheme or the 100-day extended sick leave scheme, it amends the law to say that regardless of which one of these systems are used, employees who take the 12 weeks of parental leave must now be paid no less than 50% of their regular pay, which is essentially what's required by the 100-day system. So now employees that are on this leave are going to get paid at least 50% of their regular salary, which wouldn't have necessarily been the case for employers that were implementing the five-month differential pay system. And I think it's important to note that this kicks in only after an employee has exhausted their current and accumulated sick leave and begin to go on what we can generically refer to as extended leave. And again, under extended leave, we have two different possible schemes that a district might have. We have the differential pay scheme and we have the 50% pay scheme. So what, as Nikki was saying, what this particular piece of legislation does is for parental leave only, employees must be paid at least 50% of their salaries, not less. So it's important, again, as we're gearing up for implementation of this beginning in January, to look at your policies and your practices and your collective bargaining agreement to see whether you need to make changes to any of those to be consistent with the law. It also means that you need to communicate to employees who are responsible for implementing this new law and ensuring that employees are receiving at least 50% of their pay, that you have talked to them and trained them as to what this means. Because 
for districts that have the 50% extended sick leave scheme, this is likely to have little to no impact there. For those districts that have a differential scheme, you are going to have to look at for both your certificated and classified employees whether when you deduct the, the amount the substitute is receiving or in the event of certificated employees would have received from the employee's daily rate that the amount that you are paying the employee is not less than 50%. So again, there's some homework that needs to be done in order to prepare for this new law taking effect. Nikki, can you comment on what districts might need to do if their differential scheme actually results in an employee receiving more than 50% of their pay? So this law doesn't affect, isn't going to cause an employee to start receiving less pay. All the law does is it requires employees to receive at least 50% of the regular salary. So the amendment does not result in anybody receiving less than what they would have been paid according to whatever the current system is for the particular district. What it does mean is that employees that were potentially getting paid less than 50% of their regular salary because of the um, amount being paid to the substitute or what should have been paid to the substitute for certificated employees, those employees are going to be paid more to make sure that they're getting at least 50% of the regular salary. The other thing that I want to add is the um, law doesn't currently contain any kind of exception for uh, collective bargaining agreements or MOUs that may have a different requirement that potentially conflicts with this uh, that may require or may result in employees receiving less than 50% pay. There is no exception for existing agreements. Starting January 1st, 2019, regardless of what is currently in any existing agreements, the employers are going to have to change their practices. Well, given that, what, if anything, should public agencies do to ensure compliance with AB 2012? Well, Luke, like we've mentioned, I think checking your collective bargaining agreement and seeing whether there's language that may need to be changed. If your collective bargaining agreement is closed, you might need to work with your unions to create an MOU um, or a side letter to explain how you're going to implement this for the time being, or simply that you will be complying with the law rather than what's in the collective bargaining agreement to ensure no less than 50% is paid to employees who are on parental leave. Another thing that I think is really critical is many districts have developed a very good system for tracking this type of extended sick leave and have letters that correspond with various types of leaves that employees may be on. It's really important that you look at those standardized letters before January 1 to ensure that those standardized letters don't say something contrary to what the law says or what your practice may be changed to be in light of AB 2012. The other thing that I want to emphasize on this, and we also talked about with regard to lactation accommodations, is that the sooner you start looking at this before January, the better. The leave laws in general, particularly around parental leave and differential pay, are complex and they are constantly evolving. So it takes time and effort to stay on top of them, and you want to make sure that you are 
being proactive so that you can ensure that there's going to be a smooth implementation and no bumps in the road that are going to create liability for the employer or any hiccups in the, in the payroll system. You don't want to be fixing these issues after the fact. I think that's good advice, Nikki. Start early and get ahead of the problems before they even happen. Exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dulcinea and Nikki, for joining us today and discussing these labor and employment issues that our public agencies are facing. And thank you to listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.